Are you ready? Hey, everybody. Hey, folks. Hello, everybody. People in the back. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Without further ado. Without further ado. Okay, so without further ado, we're going to get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rambling. I'm rambling. We're, we're, we're going to get started. <laughs> Welcome to the Inner Loop Radio. I'm Rachel Kuntz. And I'm Courtney Sexton. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you stream from. For all of our loyal listeners out there, don't forget to leave us a review telling the world how awesome we are. And for any new listeners out there, here on the Inner Loop Radio, we delve into all things creative writing, whether that be inspiration, craft, what makes a great ghost story, or how to construct the perfect sonnet. We play clips of writers from the Washington, D.C. area reading their own work at our monthly reading series, and we invite a few of those writers to join us in our discussion. On today's show, we're going to be exploring how monsters and ghosts present themselves in our writing, what they represent when they are there, and how we use them as foils, covers, and stand-ins. That's right. Since it's autumn and much of the natural world around us is succumbing to its yearly death, uh, and as we come upon the most glorious of holidays, Halloween, (laughs) we thought this would be particularly timely for a discussion. And after all, isn't the ghost story one of the most cemented in oral and written storytelling tradition? I think so. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) We think so. We think so. Um, You know, I think I was thinking a lot about the famous ghosts. We look at Shakespeare with Hamlet and Macbeth. And I mean, really, is there... With ghosts as characters. As characters. Yeah. But is there really... Like, I can't even think of a Shakespeare play where, like, there's not some sort of ghost ghost or or premonition or something. That's true. He's very, like, supernatural. Real into the supernatural. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, of course, there's, like, Victorian-era literature, and we get more into the monsters with the Frankensteins and the Draculas. And those are the stories that have like stayed with us exactly. as a culture they they shakespeare is always there um frankenstein is there mary shelley just right. like stays with us and we keep telling that same story over and over and over again because we have this fascination with these stories about monsters and ghosts right and it's you know so often okay so sure the story itself and the characters themselves are entertaining and vivid but really it's what they're speaking for or standing in for right so you know we take frankenstein yeah i was gonna say (laughs) (laughs) so what do you think frankenstein means (laughs) um but yeah but it's a really i think it's a really interesting lens that as you're saying we see throughout history to talk about things that we're we have trepidation about or that we're literally afraid to talk about well death (laughs) is like the great unknown right right so we have to come up with some way to talk about it some way to think about it to be comfortable with it yeah i think to like strip away some of the terror (laughs) the horror which is like ironic because the ghost story is scary it's there to like but it somehow like bringing the fear to the forefront like making it tangible 
kind of like dispels it also. It's yes. like that catharsis that Aristotle talks about. Definitely. I actually, I got into a fight with my brother recently about <laughs> juicy stories. Yeah, tell me. Yeah, no, he, he, um, he thought I was criticizing his parenting skills because yeah, no, wow, I, wow. I know. I know. <laughs> um, because, um, my nephew, um, is he's he's a, he's really like sensitive to masks and and ghosts and goblins mm. and scary type things. Me and, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm like, I feel you, but I made a comment that apparently I shouldn't have made. To a the scary effect. comment? No. You told your no. nephew a scary story that was way out of his age range. No, that is what it. I'm hearing as a mother. No, no, no. <laughs> to the effect of, hey, you know, kids need to be exposed at a certain point to a certain level of fear-inducing things so that they learn how to overcome them mm. when they're not a really scary or overwhelming situation so that they can later on in life. And that was my concerned. So wait, you totally out. glossed over what you said to your nephew. No, I just said, oh, maybe you should let him watch that scary movie for a oh, minute. Oh, I see. And then it became a, a whole yeah, thing. Yeah, it became yeah. a whole thing. Yeah. But again, I was like, well, if he sees it in the movie, in the fiction of it, yeah, he's a step removed. And then has experience with it emotionally without and actually going through it. And he can see how it's overcome, because it. like exactly. in every story, it's overcome somehow. Right. That's a good point. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> thought so. Cordy's brother, if you're listening, she had a good point. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. Rachel's also a parent. Um, yeah, so I know everything, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, so they, you know, they also have this this um, omnipotent and kind of omniscient. Yeah, as like a stand-in in the story, they can serve to like move the story forward in this mm -hmm. like super super way. Right. Supernatural, I was going to say, but that's like too easy. But like they're above the storyline, let's say, and they can sort of you can pick out um, you know, things in the story that a character normally wouldn't be able to right. do. But the ghost can know everything yeah i mean as a literary device they're incredibly useful so right? useful so easy <laughs> and then the ghost whispered to me in my ear this information Don't i really needed to know in order to like <laughs> go out the front door <laughs> anyway um i do wonder though and this is actually you know we were talking just a minute ago about using the the fear of death and that kind of thing but there are that's in our culture but there are other cultures that are much closer to death and embrace it in different ways and and something that I would love to think more about which I don't know enough about but how are ghost stories told in around the world in other, other cultures, cultures yeah, yeah. Because we have our, like, traditional campfire, like, you know, and then the darkness crept up and blah, but, like, you know, scared everybody kind of thing. Um, but I think, you know, I think of, like, the chupacabra or things that are more real almost <laughs> or like could be more <laughs> real um and where they come from like but also like the origins yeah and what the culture believes happens after right. death sort right. of like what do the buddhists think about ghost stories like is yeah. it sort of nonsensical <laughs> i mean probably <laughs> um but yeah it's also interesting how ghost stories can transcend culture also because mm -hmm. you know even though um, you know, in the United States, we're a majority Christian and they believe that people go to heaven or hell. Um, 
you know, the, the, the basic ghost story is still there. We still think of go like of ghosts and monsters as something that is always like hiding in the background right. in the shadows. There's something there. Um, you know, even if logically or in, you know, philosophically, we don't believe in that, um, still like instinctually. Well, yeah, I mean, I would much prefer to think it's a ghost that like moved my table than someone who like broke into my house and did. So oh God, like, I'll me, take it. Give me the culture guys, right? <laughs> I don't know. I can't even watch scary movies about ghosts. That's how afraid really? of ghosts I am. Yeah. I'm like intruders, fine. Uh, monsters, fine. <laughs> Serial killers, fine. But ghosts, no. They're too real for you. Yeah. It's too real. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I think that's a that's a good note uh, to stop our little discussion here on. What makes a great ghost story? Let's hear from an expert ghost story writer, Elizabeth Evitz Dickinson. Up next. Let's gather. Gather. Gather, please. Um, you can gather in. Gather round, gather round for the second half. Started. We're gonna get started. We'll get started. We're officially getting started. I'm not teasing you this time. Here to discuss the function of ghosts in our writing is Elizabeth Evitz Dickinson. Elizabeth is an active writer living in Baltimore. In addition to being the recipient of a host of awards and grants, Elizabeth has a unique perspective on ghost stories. That's right, she does. Um, part of it comes from a profile that she did on Frances Glessner Lee, who was a woman um, who created recreated crime scenes in dioramas in the 30s. Um, and I'll let you tell us a little bit more about that. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's we're glad to have you. Have you. Yeah, this is a great, great topic. I love it. Cool. Well, it's also, I'm excited because it's very appropriate to have you also because you read with us live just a year ago at our podcast podcast release reading and party that's right yeah so. also in october yep yep so welcome back. i have to come back every october i now. think that should Apparently. be a tradition i like it I i'm like a ghost it. that returns every october uh, well so before we have you read from us because i do want to read for us i do want to have you do that tell us a little bit about this uh this crime scene profile piece that you, that you read with us last year well um the piece from the new yorker about francis glessner yeah. Lee was about this fascinating woman in the 1930s who was really interested in forensic science and and this was a time when police work and crime scene investigation was like, how about we just walk all over everything? <laughs> Maybe we'll heat up the blood and see what we can get from it. Let's like, retrace the footsteps. Exactly. And everybody was invited in, like, oh, you know, wow. neighbors, yeah. come on in, let's see what's going on. <laughs> but what was interesting about Frances is that she had a real desire to speak for the dead. Mm. She wanted to get to the truth of what happened. And in a lot of her crime scene um, recreations, which were these really intricate little dollhouse dioramas. They were known as the nutshell studies of unexplained death. And she was very (laughs) meticulous about like recreating these bedrooms and these houses where these crimes took place. And the goal was to help train 
police to understand how to go in and get wow, to the and truth what of it. To look for. And a lot of it were um, the, the deaths of women. And what really interested me about Frances, who was a very like high society, wealthy woman in the 30s, is some of these death scenes were, you know, prostitutes, women who were mm -hmm. working jobs in bars, who right. had these complicated lives. And it very much spoke to sort of how do you get at what really happened to the lives of these women who are now departed. And who otherwise probably weren't really considered much at all in the news or, you know, kind of like, oh, your story doesn't matter, really. Well, and also you realize, like, when you think about, like, classic ghost stories, how many of them happen in the home. Yes. Like, how much are yeah, about the haunted absolutely. houses, how right. much are about the crimes and the deaths the that happen. The shower scene. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so she had this unique perspective of trying to figure out how we get at the truth of what happened mm. to the dead. And when you go back in history and you look at sort of the origin of ghost stories, a lot of them really were about this idea of how do you let the soul rest because mm, you know what really happened. Think about how many ghost oh, stories yeah. about the dead I'm coming back to have that closure. because they needed to have closure. that closure. Mm. And so um, while Frances probably did not believe in ghosts because she was very pragmatic, okay. <laughs> um, you know, I think she was doing that service for the dead. Interesting. And what could be creepier than a dollhouse recreating a murder scene? Nothing. They're incredible. Nothing so we, they were. Creepier. There was an exhibition at the Runway last winter, and they had several of her nutshell series there. And it was just like I kind of had to leave. It was a little so creepy. It was so creepy, but wow. very real. But with these very unreal. Like the dolls are so fake, but the the scenes are so real that it was this odd contrast. For Weird. Me. Yeah. Uh, she really studied all of it. Like when you think about gothic horror, yes. it's like she studied blood spatter mm -hmm. because the goal was it was for it to be a training tool. Right. It wasn't meant to be a story. It was meant to be a tool to learn how to read a crime scene. And she just did way too much detail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's hear a little bit from your writing, because in some ways, uh, the writing process can be like being visited by a ghost or being possessed. And on top of that, I know that the memoir you're working on has some of the kind of some some ghostly spooky parts. And we'd love to hear some of that. Yeah. Okay. Would you like me to tell you a little bit about the book? Sure. Or just yeah, go right yeah, in please. The, no, so um, in 1965, actually in October... And in Arlington, here, not far from oh where my we God. are. Creepy. I know, I know, creepy. Um, <laughs> the sad story is that my grandmother, who was just 48, uh, took her own life. And it was, she never left a note. It was not something that we ever talked about in our family. It was my father's mother. He was 23 when he found her. And what I'm mm -hmm. going to read is going to take you a little bit more into that. Mm -hmm. um, and after he died, I realized that I didn't know a lot about the past. Mm -hmm. And as a little girl, I was really fascinated with, with her, even though I hadn't heard sure. much about her. She was a secret in the family. And so um, I used to dream that this woman with red hair would come and sit at the end of my bed, mm. like when I was five or six. And it was years later that I described the woman to my father, and he went, Ashen. Oh my God. And he said, you you just described your grandmother. Um, I will say as an adult, 
I don't know that I believe that I was visited by the ghosts. Like I have this interesting relationship with ghosts where I don't know if I believe in them. Right. Um, I do. (laughs) (laughs) But in some ways, even, even if it's not an actual phantom, as it were, you were conjuring her in a way to fill this void of her not being in your life. Yes. And I think that what really has been interesting to me in the search of this book is not only trying to find out the story of her life. Sure. Um, and doing the service that Francis did to those women, right. like finding her story, but also what's the nature of secrets? Mm. What's the nature of family trauma? Mm-hmm. How can ghosts be grief gone awry? Mm. How can totally. a ghost be the way we don't communicate explicitly, but, you know, sort of covertly? And those conversations, yeah. Yeah. So um, it's really just interesting to me, too, because ghost stories often have a lot left out. You know, there's a lot that's missing. (laughs) And so as I approached the story, I wanted to kind of talk about what it felt like as a child to have that sort of ghostly understanding of her and then how that evolved over time as I started (laughs) to learn her story by digging in. Awesome. Cool. I can't wait to hear something. Let's hear (laughs) some. So this is called Arlington. My grandmother was dead to begin with. Medical examiner certificate number 689 filed with the Commonwealth of Virginia attests to this. Name, Wilmeth P. Evitts, age 48. Died on October 21st, 1965. Place of injury, home. Immediate cause of laceration of heart and lungs due to a gunshot wound. When prompted by the form as to how the injury occurred, Medical examiner John H. Judson wrote, she shot herself. Judson certified by his signature that the cause of death was suicide. The form says that my mother supplied the biographical information for the form. My parents had been married a little over a year, and one could conclude that my father was unable to answer such prosaic questions in the hours after finding his mother slumped in a rocking chair, shot through the heart. Even if the paperwork had inquired after a motive, that box would have remained blank. My grandmother did not leave a note. Wilmeth was buried days later in the rich clay soil of Arlington National Cemetery, just a few miles from the apartment where she had ended her life. In 1950, when my grandparents had first moved to Arlington with my eight-year-old father, they frequented the graveyard. Mm. Not because they fancied the macabre, but because the topography was pleasant. (laughs) Over 600 rolling acres cooled by a breeze off the Potomac River. People had picnics under the shade of homestead elms and black oaks before visiting a historic grave. My grandmother preferred to watch my father pedal his bike along the smooth paved paths. She liked to scan the sky with binoculars for migratory birds while my grandfather cataloged what she had found in his tidy cursive. I was born eight years after my grandmother ended her life. So when I was five and my grandmother came to visit me, she did not drive the 230 miles southwest from Arlington to the foothills of Virginia's Shenandoah Valley where we lived. She did not marvel at the azure fluorescence of the Blue Ridge coming into view, those misty mountains looking from the distance of the interstate like so many layers of tissue paper on the horizon. There were no stops at the scenery along the way, the glistening stalagmites inside of Luray Caverns, or the geologic wonder that is the natural bridge. She did not feel the whoosh of highway swooping her along the skyline drive, 
never angled off into those mountains, leaving the paved road for gutted gravel to hear the pickers play bluegrass and sip bald-faced whiskey fresh from their stills. No, when my grandmother visited, she was dead, and I must first assure you of this, or nothing good can come of our story. <laughs> Thank you. <Wow. laughs> so, okay, I love that, and I remember loving hearing what you read with us last year, but what immediately jumped out to me is the way you were able to describe the entire scene of where you grew up as a child just by talking about this woman who wasn't there. So right. she functions as, a, like, she navigates us through your entire environment. But also it's a way to build tension. Right. So it's like you know a ghost is coming. Yeah. Because she says she died before you were born, and then so she visited me, and here's how she didn't do it. And you're, like, waiting to hear how she did do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, those two things are happening simultaneously, and that just seems like an incredibly efficient tool. Yeah, to get in that dialogue. I mean, one way that you can kind of talk about ghosts is in what they don't get, right? right. What mm-hmm. they don't experience and what doesn't happen. And then also just that idea of, um, yeah, wanting to set the landscape of where I grew up in the Blue Ridge, which was a very haunted landscape mm-hmm. as you move through the book. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's got um, just as a topography. And again, topographies are great settings for ghost stories. Sure. I mean, thinking about the Victorian era and like the Bronte sisters Yes. and like you know just that landscape the of the moors and the- <laughs> yeah it's like um and so there is a part of me that fe- feels like in some ways the the landscape that I grew up in also helped conjure mm. that sort of magical like relationship with the otherworldly mm-hmm. definitely and and the the walking through the graveyard or the cemetery is also interesting because that kind of it's one of those things that I feel like when people retell the stories of a tragedy they try to look back for any hint of what might have been like oh she must have been a very macabre person she hung out in the graveyard all the time when in fact that was not the case at all I mean we walked around Père Lachaise every day in Paris and that's perfectly normal or here in D.C., the Congressional Cemetery is a dog park now, which is wild. But I can imagine that story, like, being told, like, oh, the tittering, you know, the undercurrent, or what what made her do it kind of thing, which is something I think we write ghost stories for, too. Yeah, and I think that, you know, ghost stories and suicide in that same way, you know, you have to be careful when you're telling a story of someone where you don't understand what happened at the end. Mm-hmm. And um, I come to writing originally as a journalist, and sometimes I, I find myself wanting to be rooted in fact, mm-hmm. but there's a point where, like, truth stops and facts aren't there. And, you know many people want to know what happened to her when I tell them the story. And one of the truths of life is that we don't know what Mm -hmm. happens, which is why we tell ghost stories. We don't know what's going to happen when we die. But it's to explore the unknown. And this is unknown. You have to leave it as unknown. And so part of it is like, well, what is that? What are we left with? What are we living with? And what are we living through? And what can we learn from the not knowing Mm -hmm. as we try and search for some kind of understanding? Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I feel like that's a really good place to stop. But it's been wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was great being here. We're going to lighten the mood a little bit. Coming up, a little fun Halloween treat.
to the porches this month for our annual writing retreat. And one of our favorite parts is gathering around the campfire to read what we've written and writing pieces together. That's right. In fact, we love playing uh, the Exquisite Corpse writing game at our retreats. Uh, so much so that we've invited two of our Interloop alums who've also been on our retreats to act out one of our stories that we wrote during Exquisite Corpse. So, Dan Knowlton and Kate Heller, why don't you tell Welcome. us exactly what that is? Hi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> tell us about the Exquisite Corpse game. Okay. Um, so, the way that... Did we have props? We did. Yeah. yeah. So, at, at, the, at the retreats, we usually like, pick a... Everybody picks a genre. Mm -hmm. Which you don't have to. It's an optional component of the Exquisite Corpse. Yeah, yeah. You can put a genre at the top, and then you write the first line. Yeah, you write one sentence, and then you pass it on to the person next to you. They write another sentence, they fold yours down, and the person next to them only sees their sentence. So it's basically like a giant game of writer's telephone. Yeah. Yeah. That's and a great so, that's a that's a great way to describe that it. That is a really, a really great way to describe it. That's what it is. Right on <laughs> telephone and as one can imagine it gets like really loopy. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the first year was it our very first retreat that I we think, did? Yes, I think I it, was. it was. Yeah. We wrote this insane exquisite corpse that we love and we actually read it. <laughs> We've read it. We we read it on our very first episode of the Inner Loop did Radio, we? which was exactly a year ago. By the way, this is our one year anniversary. Oh, of the Inner Loop I Radio. remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Um, so now we are going to get a live reading, like acting out. Courtney yes. and I just read it. It was not the same as so what cool. we're about to it's experience. Gonna it's going to be so much better. <laughs> so this story, and actually this came from Dan's prompt of a noir genre piece. And I, Who doesn't love noir? Bah, bah, bah. <laughs> <laughs> what you can't see right now, I won't nope. describe it. <laughs> no, no, don't do it. Nope. Anyway, it's called Small Batch Murder. Kate and Dan, take it away. Take it away, guys. When the dame walked into my office, I should have known she'd be trouble. Her hair was parted to the left side, swept beside a half-opened eye. Damn mosquitoes. But when the blood came steadily, her heart beat her into a panic. Sonny's not coming. Sonny's not coming, and neither is nobody else. I'll bleed out right here, right here on the floor of this two-bit soda shop in this good-for-nothing town. Not before I find the SOB who dealt this fatal wound. I crawled to the phone box, my gimlet still in my hand. With my last ounce of strength, I dialed the number and said, Murder! It was a small batch murder! <laughs> Sonny? Bravo! Oh my god. You guys are incredible. Thank you. The lovely Dan Knowlton and Kate Heller. Awesome. Well, that was a, an artisanal murder story for you there, folks. Small batch. Happy small Halloween. Batch, local. Happy Halloween. Trick or treat. And that's our show. Join us next month for another hour of literary fun. To find out more about us or to submit to read at our next event, visit us at www.theinnerlooplit.com. Today's episode was produced by Courtney Sexton. Our theme music is by Andrew Logan, and our technical manager is James Skinner. Thanks again, Elizabeth Evitz Dickinson, Kate Heller, and Dan Knowlton for joining us on the show. And special thanks to Tyrone and 202 Creates for this lovely podcast studio. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or any other streaming site you use. Podcasts thrive on reviews like yours. So if you want to support The Inner Loop, take the time to tell the world why you love us. And don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy writing. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. <laughs>
right on. Lit with. <laughs>